0: Do you like to go mountain biking? Do you want a pet chinchilla? Does your computer seem to have a mind of its own? How superstitious are you? Can we blow up the air mattress so we can sleep on the pool? What do you want to be when you grow up? What's the favorite thing you've bought that costs less than a dollar? Do you need to get your hearing tested? Can we plan a trip to see some goats? Well, if you have kids, you know that they can be full of questions and some kids are just more inquisitive than other kids. And that's just a nice way of saying they'll drive you crazy as a parent. You know, why is the grass green? Why is the sky blue? Why does the sun come up in the morning and go down at night? Why do healthy foods taste so bad and junk food taste so good? You're still asking that question a lot of you, aren't you? Um, why, why do I have to go to bed so early? Why can't I stay up later? Why do I have to do my homework? Why can't I go out with him? He'll drive carefully two more points and he's going to lose his license. Do you remember a number of years ago there was um, a bumper sticker that got popular for a while that people put on you know the back of their cars and it said this. It said Jesus is the answer. You'd see it on billboards too, and it caught on. It's pretty catchy for a little while it's interesting because if you read the four gospels and by four gospels we mean those books that were written about jesus life and his teachings on earth matthew mark luke and john first four of the new testament those are the four gospels but if you read those four gospels what you find is that jesus is more of the question than the answer it's recorded in the Gospels that 183 times people asked Jesus questions. And there were simple questions like, where are we going to get enough bread to feed these people? Two profound questions like, how can we have eternal life? But here's the kicker. Of those 183 questions that people asked Jesus, Jesus answered directly only eight of those questions. All the others, He either answered indirectly, He told a parable, He ignored their question, or often He would answer their question with a question. And when He would ask you a question, the more uncomfortable He could make you feel, the better. But when Jesus was on earth, it's also recorded that He asked 307 questions. 307. He was 38 times more likely to ask you a question than to answer your question. Interesting, isn't it? And those were engaging questions. Those were probing questions. Those were questions that would make you think about life in new ways. questions like, what are you looking for? what do you want me to do for you? Do you want to get well? Why do you doubt? Why do you worry? We are going to start a new series today. And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at this series called Questions from Jesus. Five thought-provoking questions that He asked. Questions like, why are you so afraid? Do you love me? Are you going to leave too? Who touched me? And today, who do you say I am? Now, why did Jesus ask so many questions? You know, for the most part, we like easy, pat answers. Just the facts, right? You know, He rarely gave those. But even with like a sermon, I like three points. I like them to rhyme and alliterate. That just seems right. Unfortunately, rarely did Jesus do something like that. So, why did He ask so many questions? Well, in that day, that's what rabbis and teachers did. And there were a number of reasons Jesus would do that. One is, He just wanted to open up conversation with people. You know, get them talking, another, in other words. Another reason was He liked to initiate reflective, introspective thoughts for people. Get them thinking a little more deeply. And um, perhaps another reason is he just wanted to know what they were thinking, or at least get them to express what they were thinking. So that's what was behind a lot of that. Now, imagine this. Imagine you invite Jesus over for milk and cookies. And you're sitting there, you know, you serve the milk, you serve the cookies. The two of you are sitting there, and as, you take, as you're taking your first bite of your cookie... Jesus looks at you, He makes eye contact, He looks you right in the eyes, and He says, who do you say I am? How would you respond to that question? Well, after you got done choking on your cookie. Well, guess what? We are in luck, because there's a story in the Bible where Jesus did that exact same thing. He did that with His disciples, and we get to listen in. And just see how they responded to that question. Now, in three of the four Gospels, this story we're going to look at this morning is recorded. And you know, if it's in three of the four, then you know it's got to be uh, pretty important stuff. So, we're going to listen in to that question of those three of the four. And um, as we do that, um, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 16. But just understand this. The question we're coming to that Jesus asked this morning is like a hinge question to His ministry. It is a pivotal question to why Jesus was on earth and while He was on earth. Everything leading up to this question is to push the disciples toward their answer to this question. Everything that follows this question leads us to the cross. And I'm going to give you a lot of context behind this question this morning, what was going on around it, and here's why. When you understand the context, it just brings so much color. It just brings a story and everything that's going on to life. It makes it so much more meaningful. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 16 and with verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? So there's the question, who do you say I am? Now, let me ask you, how would you respond if Jesus were to ask you this question? How you answer this question is by far the most important response you'll ever give in your life. What you say in response to this question determines the trajectory of your life now and determines your eternal destiny. Now, the Bible is a geographically written book. I don't know if you noticed when I read, but it said that they came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a Roman city north of where Jesus grew up. The best way to describe it is that it was the Las Vegas of that region. What was done in Caesarea Philippi stayed in Caesarea Philippi. And there was a huge rock shrine that was built to the Greek god Pan at Caesarea Philippi. Prostitution was prevalent and considered a religious act of worship to the god Pan. You know, the disciples had to be absolutely shocked that Jesus would bring them to this city. And this city was called the gates of hell or the gates of Hades because of what went on there. Much of the immoral activity that was done there was done in the name of the God Pan. I think the disciples were looking around as Jesus took them there like, why are we going here? What are we doing? But Jesus brought His disciples here to make a statement about who he was it's a defining moment so jesus asked the question who do you say i am check out what happens next peter's answer simon peter answered you are the messiah the son of the living god boom i mean you nailed it peter that's the right answer so, if like, you're ever on Jeopardy, and the clue for a thousand is you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, then buzz in and say, who do you say I am? If you are ever having milk and cookies with Jesus, and He looks you in the eyes, and He asks you directly, who do you say I am? Then Peter's answer is the right answer to that question. You know, Peter was often the first of the twelve disciples to speak up. That got him in trouble a lot of times. In fact, in just a few minutes, in this exact same story, we're going to see that it gets him in trouble. But in this instance, Peter nailed it. And like I said earlier, if you're looking for a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry, this is it. Watch this. We go to the city tomorrow then. No. My time has not come yet. When will that time be then? Simon. The priests will ask you to explain yourself. They already are. They want to know who you are. Everybody does. Who do people say that I am? The Nazarene. The man from Nazareth. Some say Elijah, or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The blind men, in Galilee. They call you the son of David. But who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this wasn't revealed to you by your flesh, but by my Father in heaven. You are Peter, rock and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it the disciples had already said that jesus was the son of god you can see that recorded in matthew fourteen thirty-three, but his identity as messiah is an interesting addition in the jewish culture the term son of god meant that jesus was calling himself the very nature of God. He was saying he was God. You know, think about it. A son carries the DNA of the Father. So when Jesus referred to God as his father, Jewish leaders picked up stones to stone him because they viewed this as blasphemous. He was calling himself God. The term Messiah is equally important, though, but it carries a little different meaning. While Son of God is more about identity. The term Messiah was more like a job description and it meant anointed one. Often it's translated into English, Christ. And it indicates someone chosen by God for a particular task. The task associated with Messiah for Jews was one of deliverance. Most Jews at that time. Knew knew that they needed deliverance from the Roman Empire, just as God had delivered them from Pharaoh in Egypt, you know, 1500 years earlier. He would deliver them from Caesar, right? But when Peter called Jesus the Messiah, and, you know, the others sitting around all nodded in agreement, they didn't fully understand what that meant. Jesus wasn't going to overthrow the Roman government and set up a new kingdom right there. Right then on earth, that's what they wanted. And in fact, that's what they thought they'd signed up for. So wait until you see their reaction when Jesus says that instead of overthrowing the government, he's going to be murdered. It didn't go over so well. But we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Now, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Check out how Jesus replies. This is verse 17. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you the truth, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This is the first time that Simon is called Peter. And the name Peter just means rock. In Greek, it's the word petros. And what Jesus is doing here is a play on words. He calls Peter a rock, meaning he would be the leader of the early church. But knowing what we know about Caesarea Philippi helps you understand what Jesus was saying when he said on this rock. I will build my church. Caesarea Philippi was a huge rock. It was a huge rock in the side of a mountain. And there was a shrine there to the god Pan. Look at this picture. And in this picture, you can see what it looks like. You can see how the shrine was carved out in the side of this mountain, this rock. That exists today. If you were to go to Caesarea Philippi, you would see this. In fact, in October of 2021, we're going to take a group from the church to Israel. And you will have the opportunity to visit Caesarea Philippi and see this for yourself. That day you'll probably grill hot dogs for lunch in a park right there at Caesarea Philippi. But what Jesus is saying here takes on new meaning. Because when Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, I think He pointed up to the rocks that surrounded Caesarea Philippi where they were. This shrine... To the God Pan. Remember this place was also called the gates of hell or the gates of Hades because of what went on there? There's another play on words. Jesus was saying there is no God, there is no place, there is no amount of evil like what takes place here at Caesarea Philippi that can stop my church. And you know, that's been proven over 2,000 years. When Jesus was crucified in A.D. 33, there were about 120 people who claimed to be true followers of Jesus. Today, 2,000 years, a little over 2,000 years later, uh, maybe there are 2.5 billion people in the world who claim to be followers of Jesus. That means one out of every three people in the world today on this planet say they are a part of the church. The church, the Christian church, is the largest organization on earth. The church is bigger than China and Europe and the United States combined. And the church is the hope of the world. Because when someone becomes a true follower of Jesus, it is transformational. What the church does is is offer people a message of hope. You, know, you can go to Washington, D.C. today and you can drive through the streets of our nation's capital and you can see governmental building after governmental building. I've done that before. But as well-intentioned as some of our governmental programs are, there's not a single department of the government that can change a human heart or change a human destiny. There's no government program with transformational power. You can walk down the streets of Wall Street in New York City, which I've been able to do too. And yet, with all the financial power and impact that Wall Street represents, they can't change a human heart from the inside out. You can go to any elite school of higher education. You go to Harvard on the East Coast. You can go to Stanford on the West Coast. I've been on the campus of Harvard. Some of the best minds in the world are there and they educate young minds. But they have no power. They're absolutely incapable when it comes to the ability to change a human heart or redirect a human destiny. Government can't do it. Business can't do it. Education can't do it. But when you take a little church in a little community with people who are committed to doing whatever it takes, and they start inviting their friends to a church like that, And God shows up. Human hearts are transformed and destinies are changed through the power of Jesus Christ. The church is the hope of the world. And the gates of Hades can't overcome it. Maybe you're beginning to lose hope or heart with everything that's happening in the world today. Don't. Nothing Can stop God's transformational power called the church. And you know that the church often thrives during unsettled times. So Jesus asks the most profound question ever asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter nails the answer. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. So Jesus then renames Peter. He calls him Rock. And Jesus says, just so you know, nothing can stop my church. Now this account is going to take an interesting turn. You ever had one of those happen in your life, an interesting turn? I remember um, during the summer of 1983, I came back to my church in Columbus to focus on a ministry internship and went back to school that fall, focused on a girl I had met that summer. She eventually became my wife. That summer took an interesting turn. So let's see about this interesting turn that happens here. Verse 21, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that He must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, man, Peter, you were doing so well. I mean, Peter makes the most profound statement of his life, and then he ends up getting called Satan. Now, I don't think Jesus is really calling Peter Satan. Jesus just knows that this is Satan's agenda to keep him from going to the cross. I'm not sure that explanation made Peter feel any better back then. And I'm sure a few of the disciples were standing around going, did he just call Peter what I think he just called Peter? Peter didn't understand the of deliverance that was needed. Peter protested when he heard that Jesus was going to die because he's thinking, that's not going to defeat Rome. A dead Messiah isn't going to do anybody any good. By the way, just a quick side note, it's not unusual for you to not fully understand the work of God in your life either. So trust anyway, even when you can't connect all the dots. Now the true anointed one would defeat powers that were actually far greater than Caesar. Jesus was going to abolish the power of sin and death. He would die and be raised to life again, and the Messiah was going to deliver all of us from the clutches of Satan to a relationship with God. Did you hear what I just said? Let me repeat that for you. Jesus' deliverance as Messiah was going to abolish the power of sin and death. He would die, but He would be raised back to life. And this Messiah would deliver us from the clutches of Satan to a relationship with God. That's why the question, who do you say I am, is the most important question that you could ever answer. So, who do you say Jesus is? You know, Jesus left us no middle ground. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Another time He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. You know, to claim that, you'd better be the anointed one, right? Or else you're a liar or a lunatic. And my hope is that you will not respond to this question lightly. If Jesus' claims are true, then your eternity hangs in the balance. But when you do accept Him as your Messiah, your Savior, your sins are forgiven, you have a relationship with Him, someone to walk through with you, to walk with you through this life, to give you strength and comfort in this life, and to give you the promise of eternal life. Once you invite Him into your life, because of who He is, it really demands that we surrender our lives to Him. That we live for Him. It changes our purpose in life. And that's all good. Because a relationship with Jesus leads us to ultimate fulfillment. He gives us what we're really looking for in life. You know, I really believe C.S. Lewis, the late great British author, said it about as well as it's ever been said in his book called Mere Christianity. Just listen to what he wrote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He didn't leave that open to us. He did not intend to. I have have to accept the view that He was and is God. Let me ask you again. Who do you say Jesus is? In just a moment, I'm going to pray. But before I do, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads because I just want to give you this quiet moment to consider this profound question. And if you have never done this, if you're ready to accept the claims that Jesus made and invite Him into your life today to lead it, then tell Him that right now as I close in prayer. Jesus, we thank You for who You are. That You are indeed the Messiah. The Son of the living God. And my prayer is that each one of us, if we have not already, would open up our minds and our hearts and accept You and invite You into our lives. Because we know that there's no power on earth that can transform a human life like the power that comes through accepting you into my life into our lives. And so my prayer is that each of us would leave here today not with just a clear understanding of who you are and what you claim to be, but with a clear understanding of accepting that into our lives. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Our band is going to sing a song that'll help us keep our focus on what we've been talking about this morning, Jesus. But it's also going to help us prepare our minds and our hearts as we take communion in just a minute. We're going to give you the opportunity now to take communion. If you're watching online, you can prepare to do so. If you're here in person, um, on the floor next to your chair, there's a little prepackaged cup. And you can pick those up at this time. It has two seals on it. The top seal opens up the wafer. The bottom seal opens up the grape juice. If you have children who are going to participate, you may want to help them so they don't spill it. And we'll do this in just a minute. But you know, that little wafer that we'll take in a minute, or bread as we often call it, symbolizes Jesus' body, which was put on a cross for us. The cup of grape juice pictures His blood which was shed for us. Jesus told us before He went back to heaven, He said, I want you to do this to remember Me. I want you to take communion. So for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have done this together, taking communion to remember Jesus' death for us. So it's a very meaningful time. It's a very rich time that we have to remember Jesus and what He has done for us. So right before we take it, I want to give you a few moments to just get... Your heart ready, your mind ready to do that just some quiet reflective time in just a moment I'll give the word and we'll take this together but for now just take a quiet moment and reflect on Jesus let's go ahead and take the bread and the cup together I'd like to pray for us Jesus now as we remember what you did for us We thank You that You are indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And even though words can't express fully our gratitude to You, we do want to say thank You and let You know how much we love You. And it's in Your name we pray. Amen.